netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. The FX Podcast is where we talk one-on-one with leading artists, and today is no exception. We're going to be talking with one of the founders of an institution here within the visual effects industry. Mike Seymour is going to speak with Don Shea, the founder of Cinefx. And as Mike will point out in the interview, you'll notice a change in the masthead on uh, Cinefx recently, as Don is no longer listed as the publisher as he retires and passes the mantle to his son, Greg. So Mike's going to talk to him about the history, the challenges of the publishing industry. It's a really nice discussion and a nice little tribute to, to Don for all the work he's done in forming this institution in our in our business. And FX Guide certainly has been huge fans of Cinefx since the early days, and it's had an influence on all of us and the careers of so many in the industry. So I hope you'll stay with us for that podcast. Um, really not a lot to plug today. The FX PhD term is in full swing over at FX PhD. There's a new way of viewing the courses available over there at FXPHD as well, which is uh, quite helpful. You might want to check that out. And um, I'd really like to just jump right into this um, FX podcast. Uh, as you know, we do other podcasts too here at the site. The RC podcast covers digital cinematography, and the VFX show covers current releases as well as classic films. So check those out as well. But now let's jump into Mike Seymour speaking with Don Shea, founder of Cinefx. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. So you, um, I, I got issue number 140. Uh, it's a terrific issue of Cinefx. It has uh, Interstellar and all sorts of interesting things. It just is missing one huge thing on page, I think, three. I know four, right after the Pixamondo ad, right after the ad for Sniper. Cinefx publisher, uh, Greg, who is terrific, great guy, and I've known for years. Um, but his name is where your name is meant to be. What gives? <laughs> well, my name has been uh, been there for 139 issues, and uh, uh, Cinefx 140 uh, just happens to be our 35th anniversary issue. And uh, that's not necessarily the reason for the change, but uh, after publishing Cinefx for 35 years, I just thought it was time to, to step down and uh, kind of kick back and relax a little bit. Well, no one's arguing that you've not earned the right to uh, sit back, but uh, literally I spoke to you last for, for FX Guide at uh, the 25-year mark in 2000. <laughs> and, I was uh, probably thinking about retiring then. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, apart from anything else, uh, I'm unashamedly a huge fan of Cinefx, have been, um, and I, like many, credit it. The two sort of things that got me interested in the industry was uh, the opening uh, shot in Star Wars when the uh, ship came in overhead and then reading in Cinefix. Um, these are the two things that influenced my entire professional life. So well, it's we're a bit a of a company. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a shock, actually. And also, I should point out um, that you said you didn't want to make any fuss about the fact that you were leaving. And I thought, well, well, to use an Australian expression, bugger that. If, uh, if you're leaving, we're going to make a jolly big fuss about it because, uh, quite frankly, you deserve it and more. Um, tell me, if I could, uh, since we spoke in 2005, we've, we've obviously, you know, another 10 years on, uh, it seems like the rest of the family is fairly much intact. Um, a couple of new people have joined you, but it seems like you've got such a solid team around you that uh, there's an enormous amount of consistency moving forward. 
Well, that's one of the things that uh, that's making it possible for me to even entertain the idea of retiring. Uh, you know, I've got uh, people. You know, Jody Duncan, who's our editor, has uh, uh, been our editor since. Gosh, I can't remember now. Is she fifty? Was it? Yeah, 40 or 50, I can't yeah. remember what. Jody's been with me since almost since the very beginning in one form or another. Uh, she you know, worked with me in circulation initially and then started writing for the magazine and, and uh, obviously proved to be very good at it and, and then stepped into the editorship. And she's uh, been editor of the magazine now uh, longer than I ever was. Uh, so she's there's certainly a lot of continuity there. Joe Fordham, our associate editor, uh, he and Jody write, 95 plus probably percent of all the articles in Cinefix these these last many years. Uh, everybody in the business knows them and uh, thinks highly of them, rightfully so. And um, you know, I as as a writer, I've not uh, done anything. I, the last major article I wrote in Cinefix was Titanic, and that was a long time ago. So, well, uh, yes, except for you're, you're very much. Uh, the force behind the magazine. I know that from first-hand experience, but also just from talking to Jody and people. They, um, uh, as as terrific as Jody is, and and she's one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, you know, she'd be the first to say that uh, you're uh, you're you cast a long shadow uh, in a good way over the uh, magazine. Well, I think that's probably true. You know, I I I am the founder of the magazine. You know, I was it was my idea to start it, and and it was very much. My magazine in the early years, particularly because even like the first issue, I actually wrote the whole issue myself. So uh, gradually over time, as I was able to uh, afford to do so, I started, you know, engaging other people to to write for me, and and uh, eventually hired people on to to comprise our small, uh, very dedicated staff. But I, I think the magazine still still kind of reflects my input to the to the effect that it's. If you look back on the on the very early issues, um, they're not a whole lot different than than they are now. We tried to uh, the idea of, and Cinefix initially was uh, to provide a medium for the visual effects artists to kind of express what they did in the business. And this was back in the days when when effects artists were not kind of the superstars they are today. Um, they uh, they were very much working in the shadows. I think there there were people like. You know Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien, of course, which uh, whom everybody knew. But uh, I think there were a whole generation of people uh, that perhaps were introduced to people like Douglas Trumbull and Richard Ur- uh, Richard Edlund and Richard Urich and Dennis Muren and Ken Ralston and all these guys that I kind of considered to be in the in the first generation of visual effects artists that that CineFX covered. And um, and so I think. You know, the I think they kind of appreciated the fact that this this was a magazine that was out to to kind of cover what they did, and we went directly to them and interviewed them, and it was all very very personal as much as possible. We wanted, you know, we wanted the, these this wonderful effects work that was being done on these movies to to have a to have a signature in effect, and uh, and that's still the essence of what we're doing today. Uh, the magazine. Has changed very little, even in appearance. Um, we've had a few minor kind of design changes over the years, but the editorial thrust of the magazine is pretty much the same as it's been for 35 years now. 
I guess the other characteristic is this overarching sense of respect for the work. I mean, from the quality of the paper, the print reproduction, uh, the one I always point to is the fact you don't have a barcode on my copy, which I'm, I get as a subscriber, <laughs> which is an extraordinary commitment to, uh, to the quality of the work. Well, the only reason uh, we, we published without a barcode for, for years and, and finally were told by our distributors uh, that we had to have one. And so uh, we actually published uh, several issues before it occurred to me, well, I don't have to put the barcode on the ones that go out to the subscribers. So uh, that was, uh, we just have since then have been publishing a separate cover just for the subscribers that has no barcode and no drop lines or anything else on it, just has our logo and the issue number. And um, and I think our our long-time readers and our subscribers kind of appreciate having that pristine image because we really do put a lot of effort into choosing our Cinefix covers. I think if you look back over the years, we've most of them have been very good. There's, there's only a couple of them I kind of cringe at, but um, for the most part, we've uh, really managed to come up with some really nice imagery for our covers. Let's talk about the covers for a second, because sometimes you've managed to find a cover image that's uh, arresting, incredibly interesting, but just not what I would call a, a typical shot. So um, I think The Matrix is a good example of that. There's a cover for The Matrix films that has the, um, a shot that is so distinctively not the kind of classic Matrix image. Um, and for ages, I just sort of pondered whether it was a really good thing or a bad thing when you're putting a, a magazine out to have an image that is obscure and yet, you know, technically interesting or much more identifiable with uh, with who's on. I mean, is, does the cover sort of track, do you think, is it the popularity of the magazine or is it the subscriber base that's the majority of your readers so it's less of a uh, sort of a newsstand issue? Well, it is a newsstand issue. I think if, if we've... Uh you know, put a put a cover image out there that that you or anyone else finds is kind of obscure. We've we've uh, failed in in my view because my single criteria for choosing the covers has always been that I wanted to first isolate what we think is probably either the best work or the most popular film in the issue and and present a single image which is kind of simple in a way. We try not to make it too busy, but just says that movie. And so, um, you know, if, if, if we haven't done that in a couple of cases, then well, I kind of missed yeah, it. Yeah, no, but, but, but I guess my point is not so much that it was a obscure image in the sense that it were, but, you know, clearly if you were a magazine that was aimed more at the sort of um, the actor side of the industry, you'd put the face of the actor. And, you know, sometimes right. that's a relevant thing, as in the case of uh, an Iron Man, where, you know, the, the Iron Man cover, you can tell it's Iron Man. Uh, but there's, uh, I think, even an issue just before that, there's a giant uh, prehistoric leopard tiger thing growling at us. And, <laughs> and that doesn't tell me the name of the film as easily as the, you know... Um, Ghostbusters puff guy from uh, from you know or a Star Trek Enterprise shot, which of course is just immediately identifiable. Well, that's true. It, it depends on what movies we're covering, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know that that uh, Tiger you're talking about was from ten thousand BC, BC yeah. which is uh, probably not on everybody's uh, top of the list as far as uh, memorable movies and or images. So, I think for for the movie, it was a it was a memorable image. Um, uh, that was the cover image we, you know, that was the, the film we decided to, to cover, put on the cover. And uh, 
So um, we did touch on the fact when we spoke last, uh, when we did that uh, 25 year thing about the, uh, well, I certainly I raised my issue about issue one and whether or not uh, Alien on the back or Star Trek on the front was the right thing. I think you you said at the time you, you'd have probably switched it around the other way. But uh, uh, I would have. I mean, for one thing, the Enterprise had a number of appearances on the magazines, so we didn't really do another one. But uh, uh, I think if I had realized at the time that Alien would would pr- prove to be such a a powerful, iconic film, whereas uh, Star Trek the motion picture kind of has dwindled in, in interest over the years, I think. Um, I would certainly have put uh, Alien on the cover, I think. Though as somebody that has uh, what I'd like to think of as a fairly good collection, as in I've got every issue, and about, I think, That's 10 or 12, 12 issues of number one, I think, is my current count, um, which, which my wife is kind of puzzled as to why I need 12 issues, but I'm looking for the mint one that, I, that eludes me. Um, but you have more recently started annoyingly printing multiple front covers uh different uh options which uh you know is is almost a way of saying hey mike you really need even more of the current issues um what was the decision there well instead of getting 12 of each issue now you only need to get six of of two you know it kind of (laughs) works out that way (laughs) well um the the first time we did that um it was really i think it was the uh gosh camera which was the first one we did that on um might have, might have been Prometheus and uh, the Avengers, I guess. It was it was literally a matter of we had two movies that we really liked or we really thought were going to be good, and we had two great images from them, and we couldn't make up our minds. And so we kind of thought about it and decided to do two covers, uh, uh, knowing full well that we would be taken to task uh, by uh, you and others, I guess, because it's, it's, it does sound like kind of a cheesy money grab, say, okay, everybody's going to buy, you know, got to buy two copies now. And, you know, my answer to those people is, well, you don't really have to buy two copies, you know, it's just pick, <laughs> pick one, you know. <laughs> um, you know, we often get uh, cases where, you know, people say, well, why'd you put that on the cover instead of this on the cover? say, well, this is our way of kind of giving it you know, giving two different versions and pick pick the one you like. Um, but it, it has to be, in, in the cases where we've done that, the movies have to warrant being on the cover, and we have to have a great cover image. And sometimes you just don't get a great cover image. Um, I think that's a point you made on Forrest Gump when we spoke before, which is that Forrest Gump is a terrific film, has spectacularly good visual effects work, but by nature of the film, it was pretty much seamless effects. And I'm wondering, has there been other occasions where you've had uh, what you thought was tremendously good seamless effects that just didn't warrant that kind of uh, front cover grabbing image? Well, I think uh, probably. Uh, you know, the, usually where there are films, uh, the films that, that don't produce a good cover image are ones that tend to be environmental in nature rather than character in nature, where the effects tend to to create the environments rather than creating the a, a character. Because if it's a character, you can usually get a good uh, cover image out of it. But if it's an environment, it's not doesn't necessarily grab you for one thing. And and if it does, it's usually widescreen and even with our horizontal format magazine we're using only half of that widescreen. So it's uh, you know, environmental covers don't work too much, don't, don't work too well. I've used a couple of them over the years, but uh, as a rule, not. So I couldn't tell you right offhand uh, 
which movies I would have stuck on the cover if we'd had a better cover image. I'd have to really think about that. But there certainly have been some of those over the years where we've ended up using, uh, we're putting on a, featuring a film on the cover that wasn't the best film in the issue, but it was the one we haven't had the best image for. So, you know, that's more important. Uh, you know, the cover, you know, just to, before we get off the cover, it's sure. all together. The cover, uh, the, the choice of a cover has become much more important uh, in the last few years, it seems, since we've um, fought uh, to, to keep our place in, in, uh, on magazine shelves. Uh, the, um, in the U.S., we've lost one of our big, uh, one of our big bookstore chains that used to cover us a lot, carry us a lot with borders, and that uh, chain went away. And, and the, the opportunities to get the magazine out there and for people to actually look at have, uh, have kind of diminished. There's, it's still in a lot of comic book stores, and it's in Barnes & Noble, which is a big book chain over here. But um, so we really kind of feel it's more, it's more and more important to really grab our reader, uh, our potential reader, uh, with um, you know a cover that's going to make them stop and take another look and hopefully pick it up and, and look at it and buy it. In the, in the earlier years, we were more concerned we, we had more uh, subscribers. We had fewer uh, bookstore and, and uh, one-off readers. And so our subscribers would pretty much, you know, like whatever we gave yeah. them, I think. You know, so um, we could afford to put something on the cover that might not appeal to a broader audience, but it's still, uh, you know, would appeal to the, to the effects people. So right now... Our goal is to try to kind of expand our our focus, our, our interest, uh, by perhaps putting an image out there. It's a little more pitched toward a, a wider audience. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult. I mean, the issue that I was referring to earlier was 79, which was The Matrix, which is sort of like the back shot of Keanu Reeves with um, when he first appears... Uh, uh, having uh, in the reality, uh, having crossed over, yeah. and so he's bald and stuff. And the thing about that is that I love that shot to death. But almost anyone else at that time would have put Keanu's face on the cover, not the attacking uh, Matrix uh, <laughs> kind of thing. And so I was not, yeah, I'm not criticizing. I, I, it's really an arresting, well, incredibly well, interesting well, image. But again, that was our, you know, our focus has always been visual effects. So yeah. when possible, we we focus more on the effect than on the on the faces. Uh, I'm just sitting as we're talking. I'm just sitting here scrolling through the the covers on our back issue page on the website, and um, you know I agree. I actually like that image quite a lot, but it doesn't necessarily say the Matrix. Even though if you, if you had a shot of them, if you had a nice bullet time shot, it might have uh, been better. But we probably didn't have that at the time. But by the time you get to '95 and you're doing the Matrix Reloaded, it's again an effect shot. But now it's now you see, it's, yeah, right. The, the thing and about we picked, uh, you know, just images. I mean, if you drop down one row from that one in 90, 91 where he did Minority Report, it's always been kind of one of my favorite covers. It's not an effect shot at all. There may be a little effects going on in there, but uh, it's a shot. Uh, oh, it's of, a great uh, shot, yeah. Yeah, Samantha Morton uh, just almost submerged in water. It's 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 a very eye-catching shot. Uh, so it. It's, it kind of satisfies the appeal of the magazine in that respect, or if I saw it on the cover of a magazine, I might be inclined to pick it up and look at it. Um, so you are very much the industry archive. I, I like to refer to it as the, the journal of record for the industry. 
um, it goes into kind of Cinefix and gets locked into a place in film history. It's sort of recorded and is able to be referred to people. Now, increasingly, that's uh, something that we can do with a, a tablet and stuff, and I'll come back to that in a second. But I wanted to discuss, if I can, that while you ha are this industry of record and you say that the magazine hasn't changed substantially, the industry's changed underneath you or around you um, by uh, a, a number of factors. I guess the big one is uh, digital. Um, right. You know... From your perspective, like, do you want to just comment on those uh, sort of shifts in terms of what effects means today? Well, I think when we started the magazine, uh, effects were, um, I mean, obviously that was the reason we started the magazine, but they played a much smaller role in, in the movies in a way. Um, Star Wars, which, uh, you know, everybody thinks of as a big visual effects movie, I think probably had about 300 shots in it. Uh, now they're making movies with 3,000 shots in them. Uh, so the the sense of the pervasive sense of movie making these days, when you get into an effects movie this day, it is really uh, done on a scale that with digital allows them to do things on a scale that they could never have done back in, in the old days when they were shooting models and, and motion control shots and matte paintings and things like that. So it has certainly opened up the... the uh, the, the door to uh, allowing greater and greater use of visual effects. And so there are now true visual effects movies that, you know, practically every shot in the movie is, is an effect in, in one way or another. And I think you could make an argument for the fact that's not necessarily a great idea. But uh, uh, the when we came in onto the scene, uh, I think the idea for doing Cinefix probably came out of... Um, the year that Star Wars and Clubs Encounters were released, and I wrote at that time a big uh, kind of a full issue of uh, Cinefantastique on Close Encounters. And I, kinda, I got to know Douglas Trumbull and a number of the people that worked with him on that film. And um, I had written over the, uh, since then, and written other things uh, in visual effects, and it just seemed to me that there would be, uh, you know, a market for a magazine on visual effects, and that was kind of always my, my primary interest. But uh, so, but back in those days, motion control was kind of the new, the new big thing, and um, that has, gosh, I'm not even sure. It's almost rare to see a reference in a Cinefix article anymore where they even use motion control. Um, but it's um, it's certainly been supplanted by all kinds of things. But the the whole emergence, we we kind of followed that technology through, you know, Go Motion and some of these other. Um, aspects of, of motion control that involved miniatures and matte paintings and things like that. And then, of course, when digital technology began taking over, it just opened up the whole field because not only, even though things like uh, characters like the, um, the stained glass man, young Sherlock yeah. Holmes, which was, it's kind of cited as being one of the first CG characters. And then you, you go to the uh, T-1000 in Terminator 2 and then the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. There's kind of this progression as the dinosaurs, or as the characters got more and more realistic and organic and this sort of thing. But I think, in a sense, in, in the broader scope of movie making, what was really more important was the whole um, uh, contribution that digital compositing made to, to movies. In fact, that... Uh, and digital compositing and match moving and 3D tracking and all this sort of thing really allowed visual effects to kind of cross over into very mainstream movies. So if you look at just about any movie out there today, there's 
at least one and maybe you know as many as five or six visual effects companies, some of whom you've never heard of, uh, that are credited in just about any movie that's that's made, and you realize, okay, well, there's a lot going on here that people don't even realize anymore. They're replacing backgrounds or um, you know doing one thing or another, cleanups or changes of, of one sort or another. That are, so their movie visual effects have definitely moved into the mainstream uh, movie making. In the early days, and I, I'll use issue 14 as an example, the right stuff, I'm pretty sure, now I'm, I did. I should have pulled this out this morning, but I remember the cover, it has um, a uh, uh, NASA um, thing coming back into Earth, it's in, right. going through the uh, atmosphere, so it's burning up with right. the classic. Yeah, I think it's- and I seem to remember when I was reading that, I remember sort of sitting there, turning the page, and they were, we got a fire hydrant kind of thing out, like a fire extinguisher and then we had the miniature like this and then we lit it with these lights and we blew the thing with the fire extinguisher and it looked like it was coming back through the atmosphere and I, and it was that sense of the trick it wasn't a trick in a nasty sense it was a trick as in you know visual ingenuity visual um it was a, a an optical trick or it was a whatever but it wasn't a cheap trick it was uh just the oh my god moment where you realized how they managed to pull something off and i and I, I certainly, in the early days, it was the only way to find out how they'd pulled it off, that the poltergeist guy was shot underwater, that, you know, whatever it was, that sure. you would go to Cinefix for. I mean, how much does that resonate in the digital age when the answer to that question of how did we get the character of, um, you know, Caesar to look so good is a complex one to do with subsurface scattering and complex algorithms on rendering? Yeah, well, it resonates hardly at all. Uh, I mean, that's that's the big difference between what the kinds of articles we're writing now and the kinds of articles we, we wrote back in the old days. There was much more of a sense of ingenuity, I think, um, and that, I don't mean to be denigrating to the kind of work that's being done now, but in the old, in the old days, 35 years ago, uh, it was very much uh, every, every uh, visual effect shot had its own kind of trick, if you will. Um, and, and there was a great deal of ingenuity applied to doing it because um, they, they couldn't even get rid of wires very well back in those days. So it's just everything, an awful lot of it had to be pretty much in camera. And, you know, there would be, uh, you know, uh, various forms of compositing, traveling mats and whatnot to, to put things into place. But, um, you know, one of my favorite stories has always been the, the uh, imploding house and poltergeist, which they you know, tried various approaches to, to doing that. And finally, Richard Edlund brought in one of his his uh, collection of, of shotguns and kind of rigged the whole thing and just blew it up with a shotgun. <laughs> you know, so it's just, you know, these are the kind, that's, that's kind of like a one, one-off solution to a problem. You don't run into that kind of yeah. thing just in a movie. And now it's, it's mainly a matter of coming up with the, the, the programming necessary to uh, create the illusion that, that you want. Um, you know, it used to be that water and fire were just hellaciously difficult to, to do in visual effects with any kind of uh, realism. And now there's various uh, companies and, and software programs that can do that uh, very effectively. The, uh, the downside of that for us as a magazine, uh, and we get taken to, to task with this uh, on an almost daily basis on our Facebook page because every time we mentioned it's like digital is a dirty word but um uh you know the the effects that are being done now i think are far superior in, in quality and, and verisimilitude than, than the fix that were being done 20 years ago 
30 years ago. Uh, but they're just not as interesting to write about or read about. And so we have to try to find our writers, Jody and Joe, primarily have to kind of dig through the material and try to find the creative essence of, of these movies and talk about the challenges and, and, and try try as much as possible to kind of avoid the real uh, pixel by pixel uh, nuts and bolts kinds of things, which um, most readers, I think, probably don't find all that interesting. Though I should say in my defense, that's exactly what we find interesting at FX Guide, which is why I've always thought that we're more of a companion to uh, to what you do than a competitor, because we do love the uh, geeky technical stuff. And as much as we like to go into the software, you also go into the makeup, and that's something I've never discussed with you before, but I was wondering if we could touch on that, because uh, you have an enormous respect and have done tremendous pieces over the years on the art of... Uh, of makeup in a special effects sense. Um, does that hold a special place in the kind of Cinefix uh, uh, pantheon of stuff? Well, I think it does because, uh, again, if I, if I look back to when I started the magazine, that was a major component of visual effects. If you had an, uh, an effects movie, um, if you, you know, you had a creature, you've had, to, you've had to create a creature, you either did it with stop motion or you did it with some sort of a mechanical creation or you did it with makeup. Um, and so, you know, the, the people, uh, you know, through the years who have, who have been particularly adept at that, I mean, the Rick Baker and Stan Winston were at the peak of their, um, you know, impact yeah, on the absolutely. industry back, back uh, in the early years of Cinefax. And, and so, you know, that was, that was a very strong component. I mean, you look at Jurassic Park, for example, <clears throat> you know, there were more uh, dinosaurs done with Stan Winston's uh, mechanical creatures than there were with uh, CG. I think there were like 65 CG shots in Jurassic Park. Um, and so the, 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 over the years, it's, you know, the people who love uh, physical effects and love makeup effects have kind of feel saddened that the role of, of, um, Practical effects and makeup is kind of diminished in, over the years. There's there's now digital makeup, and there's now uh, very rarely do that you see a, a full physical creature uh, produced on on film. It's it's all, and if it is created for the film, more often it ends up getting replaced with digital by the time they 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 go through post and they say, well, you know, it was it was a great re on set reference, you know. So uh, uh, we certainly have a great fondness for that kind of technology and, and with physical technology in, in general. And the fact that people, some filmmakers are still using it, I think there's a little bit of a resurgence of interest in it. Uh, Christopher Nola is a big uh, devotee of, of um, you know, shooting things practically with miniatures and models and matte paintings and things like that that most other filmmakers would not... Uh, entertain anymore because it's just cheaper and easier to do it all digitally so uh, we try to uh, keep that old technology alive as much as we can on the pages of Cinefax plus it's more interesting um, visually for us because if if as in Interstellar where there were mm. miniatures that were uh, that, that were built for that film it's you know, kind of fun to see the behind-the-scenes shots of the guys building the miniatures and then shooting them on stages, and, and that sort of aspect is is lost in the digital realm because it's all happening uh, behind the monitor. 
I remember going on set uh, at DD uh, when they had a soundstage uh, for Apollo 13 and they were showing me, you know, the miniatures that they had to film and how they were doing various techniques and mm, really complicated stuff. And it was a great fun to walk around and see those things. It was a real thrill. And then leaning right. against the wall would be a section of something that was coming up for Star Trek and it was just a lot of fun. Um, right. Though these days it's less of a requirement. I know in the early days you loved to go out uh, and sort of visit the facilities, but two things are working against that. One is it's digital, and secondly, it's a global, you know, if you want to stroll over and look at what's going on in the next, uh, well, um, apes film, it, you've got to go to New Zealand. It's not quite all concentrated <laughs> as locally as it was. Does that mean that you and the team there have sort of uh, gotten out less? And, and does that affect things? Because you've had such a great relationship with the both the VFX supervisors and the directors, for that matter, that must have come from face-to-face -face meetings. Well, sure. Uh, I think it certainly did. You know, it was, a, it was a much smaller world back there, back then. And there were, I mean, when we started the magazine, there was, uh, let me think, there was Entertainment Effects Group, which was Doug Trumbull's company. And then there was Industrial Light and Magic. And then there was Apogee, which kind of spun off from Industrial Light and Magic. You know, those were, those three companies did probably, I don't know, I'm just guessing, you know, half or more of, of all mm. the effects films that were produced uh, back in those years. And, and you know, when I started the magazine, I knew almost everybody in the business. Um, you know, there, you'd go over to Doug Trumbull's place and I'd know, I'd know the guy who was running the opticals and I'd know the guy who's, you know, the, the cameras, the, you know, the effects DPs on the stage and, uh, who was ever running the model shop and things like that. And that was pretty much the same, you know, even at uh, Industrial Light Light Magic when they moved up north in Apogee. And so um, it, it was more personal in the sense that I, I knew everybody and, and Jody when she kind of got into the writing things. We, we knew these people on a, on a personal basis and, and they were, uh, you know, we were kind of friends. And now the... the uh, you know the the business is is just huge. I mean, I, I look at the credits going by on a major effects film these days, and there's hundreds. You know, it's probably thousands on some of them. And I know just a very small percentage of the visual effects supervisors that uh, that are working in the business, or or um, you know, working for the, each company as its own visual effects supervisor. So you have. Uh, um, you know, the, the the business has gotten much more diffuse as far as, um, you know, kind of spreading out and there's just many, many more people involved. I think it used to be, too, that there was more of a proprietary sense on the part of the artists, you know, like they, they did a particular shot, whereas now, uh, I don't know how, um, you know, individual artists feel about it at the, at the lower levels, but they're... They have. They may do one little tiny aspect of, of a shot that's shared with a hundred other people. So it's a, it's a different business in that respect. Yeah. So as much as digital has transformed visual effects, obviously it's hit uh, the print industry, and a lot of magazines are not as strong as they were. So I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. Like I mean, the world is, and I've said this many times, the world is a better place for having Cinefix in it. Um, the magazine doesn't seem to have gotten to sort of a wafer thin way that some of the other magazines have is is it uh still uh, you know in a world where people want instant uh feedback on this that and the other thing and the internet is so prominent is is it still good for cinefix as the growth in visual effects transpired to sort of uh health for you or is it a struggle to you know um face the ongoing economic pressures <laughs> 
Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's certainly uh, more difficult now. Um, the, there is a very strong desire on the part of people in the digital age that they, they want their information now and they want it fast. And, and uh, um, you know, FX Guide will have its article on, on a movie, you know, the, 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 day, or the day or the weekend it opens, you know, or the week after. Um, and that's just not something we can do with a magazine, particularly a quarterly magazine. You know, um, we used to be able to count on readers saying, okay, well, if they, we don't get around to covering Ghostbusters until two months after it comes out, it's not a big deal because there's still going to be a lot of residual interest out there. Well, I don't think that's so much the case anymore, I think. Uh, in lots of cases, uh, people who can get most of the information they're interested in knowing about a film within a week of the, of the time it opens. So I think the people who continue to read Cinefix are the ones who really want to you know, delve into things at a, at a deeper level. And, uh, and so I think we've lost some of the, the casual people who are interested in visual effects from just a casual basis, and they're, they're getting their information uh, from other places. So, um, you know, you guys, you know, do, do a good job of providing that initial uh, information to people. And, and lots of times, uh, I mean, lots and lots of times you cover movies that we don't even cover because we're covering four per quarter and you're, you know, covering one or two a week. Yeah, I think so. the other thing is we definitely try and drill down on, like we'll take a shot or a sequence and try and drill down on it to get right to the nuts and bolts, uh, the bits and bites that, you know, perhaps you're not as interested in. But by the same token, we, we don't try and provide the comprehensive and complete coverage because it would be a travesty if there was an article on Interstellar that completely missed anything to do with one part of the film where we never consider that to be our mandate. We consider our mandate to be if we decide it's really interesting to talk about how they did the dust storm, then it's completely valid for us to just to talk about the dust storm. So it's, I think it's different. I think you have this. That's great. I think, I think that's one of the reasons that we kind of compliment each yeah. other. I think we've, uh, you know, right from the start, we've, we always said, okay, we're going to cover everything. In fact, when we, we go out to, um, you know, the studios to say, hey, we want to cover your movie that's coming up. Um, if they say, well, we don't want you to talk about the ending, even though we rarely come out before the movie comes out, we just say, okay, we're going to pass on that because we've always felt that we needed to have free access to talk about everything. And so um, we, in the early years of the magazine, where we, we could almost talk about every shot in the movie, certainly every sequence in the movie. We can't do that anymore, but we do still try to, in general, talk about the broad strokes of the movie. And so in a sense, as uh, you know, you're, you're drilling down on individual areas, which is the kind of thing we used to do. But now we have kind of, if you look at this at visual effects as this big tree, um, you know, as the branches get more and more uh, diffused and larger and spread out, uh, our articles are, if anything, shorter than they used to be. And so there's a c compression there. We don't cover everything to the detail that we, we used to. And I obviously feel really bad when we completely skip the guys that did a whole section simply because we're not discussing that part of the film. And, you know, it must be pretty annoying to them that we don't do that. Um, but I will say this, that, that I, in my best day, I would dream of having the kind of gravitas and uh, impact that Cinefix does, just the name and the reputation, which, you know, is very much something that I would put at your feet directly, that there just is no better gold standard for 
reliable, um, comprehensive and trustworthy coverage. And, and we try and, you know, emulate that. But you guys are just the gold standard for getting it right. There aren't, in my experience, just a bunch of errors in Cinefix. It's just a very well-researched uh, magazine. Well, we we try. Um, and we're, we're pretty From the very beginning, one of the things that journalists uh, are appalled at, you know, true journalists are appalled at, uh, is the fact that we actually... If we've written our articles, we send them back to the people we've interviewed and have them review them. And uh, everybody says, well, that's not, you know, journalists aren't supposed to do that. But, uh, you know, we never really thought of ourselves so much as journalists as much as, as researchers. And it was always more important to us that uh, that we get everything as, as accurate as possible. And so one of the best ways of doing that is sending it back to the people we interviewed and say, hey, do we, and plus the fact that very, a lot of stuff is really technical and difficult to understand, send it back to them and say, Know, well, did we get this right? And if we didn't, uh, you know, let's fix it before it goes into print rather than hear about it in the letters to the editor column uh, three months later. So uh, every once in a while we we, uh, we miss one and, and uh, we, we had kind of a flap here a few months ago in one of our articles that uh, something was misrepresented. It, it wasn't uh, it wasn't our fault and it wasn't even the fault of the person that we were quoting who said this particular please, thing. Please tell me it wasn't the Godzilla article. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't the Godzilla article. I wanted to ask you about that because the magazine's quarterly, but the thing that strikes me from a, an insider's point of view that is the thing that most people don't appreciate about what we face and certainly you face is getting access to the imagery and getting access to the imagery early enough given that films get finished at what feels like the weekend before they get released. <laughs> Um, and of course, it's all very well, like if somebody's putting out a making of book, uh, they literally nowadays just don't have any post pictures in the making of book because the book has to come out when the film comes out. The book goes to press six months before. And so you get all these right. behind the scenes on set stuff and there's like no post. It's not a making of book. In fact, making of books are virtually, in my experience, completely worthless because it's a pre-production book, not a making of uh, book. Right. Now, concept art, completely different story. But... Um, but you, you don't have that luxury. You can't just print loads of photos of people walking around on, in front of green screens. You need the final imagery. And you need the final imagery not at it just any quality, but a significantly good quality to produce at the resolution that you produce at. Um, that must be the bugbear that the magazine faces. Well, it is. Uh, well, that's one of them. <laughs> but uh, uh, we're always kind of fighting to get the image because not there, there's several levels of, of uh, difficulty involved. One is the approval process, which is arduous at, at the studio levels and sometimes the visual effects levels and, and the filmmaker levels because there's just so many people that have to buy off on these things. And it's just easier to say no than yes in most cases. Um, but then the other thing is, is just having the imagery, having the imagery exist to even say, hey, you know, can we have that? Uh, because, as you say, so much of this all comes together at the very end. They're just changing things at the very end. So over the years, we've always kind of taken the, the tack with the magazine that we, it was more important to, to get, the mag get the article right than, than to have it be timely. And um, that's, more, that's less important now because it's, it's more important to be timely, I think, now, particularly since uh, all these other media are competing with what, what we do. But it used to be we could kind of just sit back and wait, and if the images wasn't there, or images weren't there, we'd just say, well, we'll 
run this in the next issue. Everybody will still be fine with that. But um, now, we, uh, I, I remember a couple of years ago, we had an issue, or we had an article on White House Down. And it was actually, we, we ended up covering it, pushed it up an issue, made it earlier. We actually came out before the movie was released. And it was a replacement for another article that fell out. But the, the problem with it was, Roland Emmerich uh, uh, was very cooperative, and the studio was fine, and, and uh, you know, he got along great with the, the effects guys. But when it came down to, to actually getting the imagery for the movie into the magazine in time for our publication date, they had like six finished shots. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, we managed to, to cobble together, uh, you know, enough to kind of get a representative idea of the movie, but we certainly didn't cover it comprehensively in a, in a visual sense just because uh it, 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 nothing was finished yet so yeah i mean do do many things i know for example as uh because we've you know get uh, as everybody does um you know advance notice of what's coming out in the next issue just because you put it out to um online and uh certainly um to advertisers so we know that uh, hobbit 3 and jupiter ascending and chappie are all coming in a in a in the next issue, but that's an April issue. Do things right. often change on that schedule? Do you, I mean, I don't track it, but I just sort of, you know, by the time the issue comes around, I'm just happy to get it. But do you often have things that get dropped back or dropped out? Yes, uh, quite often. If you go back and look at uh, what we've promised to, to give people and what we've actually given people, it's, it's often different. For example, uh, uh, The Hobbit, uh, Hobbit 3, uh, was supposed to have been in, in our December issue. Right. And we... Um, it kind of came down to the point where we had to start our interviewing on it. Joe Fordham was writing that article, and I went to Weta and kind of went back, and they kept kind of giving them the runaround because they were right in the thick of getting the the article or getting the movie finished. Yeah, which is which is always a consideration. Um, and so finally, we got a message back from Weta that uh, Peter Jackson had you know, requested it. Uh, could we put it back to, uh, to our spring issue? So we said, sure. So that was one of the cases where we had to go in and, and uh, do some fancy footwork to come up with uh, some other articles to, to fill that space. But that, that happens, you know, fairly often. Sometimes, once in a while, uh, we'll promise something we never deliver on, to, but um, for one reason or another. But sometimes things are just kind of switched around, or a release date will change at the last minute. We'll get down. We'll be working on the article, and uh, the studio will, for one reason or another, will decide to slip the release date by a few months, and and they don't want to have the article out real early for one thing, and and so they they have a lot of control over us because they control the imagery. We can't really. We could we could publish an article with, with no pictures, but I don't think most people would like it very much. Now, I'm not going to name the film, but for those that are listening, I, I offered to help uh, Don and the team with an article and actually researched a, a film and actually got halfway through writing it when the director suddenly decided that they wanted to pretend that there weren't many visual effects in the film and they literally um, pulled the uh, the story, which... Uh, was both upsetting to me. I'm sure it was upsetting to you, but it was stunning to me because that you know it was like, uh, why would you want the coverage? Um, but I will say this: it seems that the other side of that, the the flip side of that, is also the case. You have a very strong reputation with directors, and of course, a lot of the directors that started out younger in their careers are now 
just titans of the career and and because they knew you and you covered their film so well in their early days i'm, I'm thinking of people like james cameron and people who you know openly expressed uh, their fondness for cinefix and and they're just one of many you must have built up some very strong ties with some very good friends who've now become very senior powerful friends well absolutely and and uh, you know jody and i have often commented that you know we couldn't survive if, if we were starting cinefix now uh, which I wouldn't, by the way. <laughs> you know, print, print magazine is not exactly uh, uh, the way to go these days. But uh, if, all things being equal, if, if we were just jump into this and say, okay, we're going to do a Cinefix um, type of magazine now, uh, it would be very difficult because there are so many obstacles to, to doing what we do, um, getting the access to the... Um, to both the people and the the imagery, which studios control very tightly these days. But uh, but as a, as a, because of these relationships that we've developed over the years, you know, with people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Jim Cameron and Ridley Scott, you know, these are people who kind of get what we're doing, and so we uh, are able to call in the eight hundred pound gorillas once in a while. And it really uh, makes all the difference for us because sometimes we would just get. I can, I can remember Titanic was one of the few movies where we actually got the issue out a couple of weeks before the film was released. We, usually, the studios don't like us to do that because we give everything away. Um, well, in that case, the boat sank, and I think we knew that. The boat sank. I think everybody knew that. But uh, even so. Um, we just, you know, we worked very closely with Jim Cameron. Jim Cameron gave us everything we wanted. We didn't even, I know, I'm not even sure we talked in the studio on that one. And I remember going to a, a screening on this, the Paramount lot, <laughs> and the uh, um, head of, uh, I think he was the head of the publicity at the time, uh, name's Greg Brilliant, and he's now, I think, back in being a unit publicist. But he um, came up to me after the, after the screening, because he'd already seen the issue, it had been out for a week or so, and he says, he says, this is a great issue, you got some great imagery. He says, you realize you wouldn't have gotten any of this stuff if you'd come to us. And I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> so uh, it does definitely help to to have uh, friends in high places. And uh, 72 was a, a cracker of an issue. I, I love that issue. Um, Thank you. In fact, uh, yeah, I think uh, it's one of the, look, I sound sound too much like a a geek fanboy, but it's one of the issues that I think I got one of the supervisors to actually autograph for me. And uh, I've got a few issues of Cinefix. I don't normally get autographs because it's uh, kind of a geeky thing to do, but there are a couple of people that meant a lot to me in the industry. And when uh, I was like, well, you know what, I'm here at your place, sign this for me and I'll stick it in the... uh, Thing. Yeah, no, it was a great issue. And, and you know, the other thing was, in the early days especially, uh, to get a reprint from Cinefix was the basis of your VFX Oscar campaign. Um, and I have a lot of those as well, which are just a sort of selective reprint. I mean, some of them you turn into books. I think Blade Runner, I've got the book of, which is basically the issue as is a book. But I'm talking about just a, a reprint of, like, one article was the Cinefix. Right, well, we did that a number of times. Um and that wasn't our doing so much as the studios or the, the effects companies would come to us and say, can we, uh, you know, we'd like to do a, a, a reprint of a particular article, just our article. Yeah. Use it as a, as a handout for Academy consideration because they used to send out packages of information. Uh, unfortunately, the visual effects committee some years back, uh, I don't know the committee or the board of directors, whoever uh, said uh, you can't do that anymore. 
They um, yeah. The only the only thing they're allowed to send out are uh, screeners, and I guess they're still allowed. To send, they do a uh, a write up, uh, you know, two or three page typed write up of what was done, and wow. that's allowed to go out to the voting committee. And other than that, they're not allowed to to send out anything more. Which, of course, is why the uh, VES Awards have become so interesting because uh, you can get a lot of information at the VES Awards. You can. <laughs> that, you can. Uh, in fact, even the, in, like at the, bake, the, the visual effects uh, bake-off for the, for the Oscars, uh, it used to be you could run uh, you know, breakdowns, yeah. video effects breakdowns, which they can't do that now. All they can do is show clips from the film, which I think is a disservice to, you know, I, I guess when, you, when you've got a, Four or five hundred uh, visual effects supervisors out there, and they're looking at clips. They know what they're looking at. But where where something like a Cinefix article would really be of value is once once it gets once the films get past the Bake Off and they've narrowed it down to five nominees now, then it goes to the Academy, uh, which I can't remember how many people are in the Academy now three or four thousand. Um, the full Academy, which is primarily you know actors and you know people that are not necessarily in a technical field. And these people are, you know, charged with coming up with the, what's the vis- the best visual effects movie of the year, or what are the best visual effects of the year. And basically what it comes down to more often than not is what was the most popular visual effects movie of the year, which is kind of a shame. Which also it's why so I think the nomination is so important in visual effects and one really can't overplay the win I mean, the, the nomination is like an industry. The the right. winner is yeah, a little know, bit more of a popularity yeah. thing. Exactly. You know, it's that's these these. If you're nominated, you're nominated by your peers, and you're nominated by people who presumably know what they're talking Were about. Were you at the '97 Bake Off when Jim Cameron did the Titanic presentation? Yes. Yeah, and that's also something they're not allowed to do anymore, from what I understand. Uh, Jim used to routinely go to the Bake Offs and kind of, uh, um, you know, put in a a presence to to kind of support his team that uh, used to come out and do that. I don't re- remember any other director doing that, to tell you the truth. But uh, uh, from what I understand, they're not allowed to do that anymore either. <laughs> yeah, that was the year that he completely ignored the uh, the time limit because he. I think he, the words were. Uh, I, the one thing I learned off Titanic is that you know to do something like this it takes a lot of time, so he just ignored the. <laughs> and no one was going to go up and tell him to get off the stage. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, uh, so you have expanded the magazine in the sense that while the magazine remains um, very much as it always has, and thanks for that, because otherwise my collection would look really odd in the in the bookshelf. But you've got the iPad version. Uh, my good friend Mark Christensen was involved with uh, with your team and in, in helping get that together. That's been a terrific addition. There's the blog. There are a bunch of other things outside the magazine that, in sort of more recent times, you've done. Right. Well, we're um, and, and I uh, credit Greg, uh, our new publisher, with uh, with most of those initiatives. Uh, Greg has always kind of been uh, on the on the cutting edge of, of uh, <laughs> where we ought to be going. You know, Johnny and I often joke about the fact that considering we published this magazine on high technology, we're both pretty low tech people. You know, we're like one step above typewriters, and. Um, uh, you know, when Greg Greg first came to work for me, gosh, it must have been 15, 16 years ago, I don't know. Um, you know, I hired him to uh, primarily to work in circulation, 
you know, because he wasn't he wasn't a writer, and uh, you know, I kind of wanted to get him in the family business in some way or another. And he came and he was working with, with me for a while. And this was uh, must have been back in the maybe around nineteen in the early nineties, maybe. Yep. Um, and this was back before everybody in the world had had a website. You know, you know they were they were there, but not but not everybody was doing it. I right? did a website just highlighting what was I did a website that was not meant to be Cinefix. It was meant to be, I'm so sick of having to go through the issues to try and work out what film was in what issue. I bet you there are other people like me. I'll publish a list of what was in what issue, just simply as an online reference, because when I was working, I'd be like, what bloody issue was it that had the thing with the thing? And there was no way to find out because you weren't online. So yeah, right. I right. remember that very well. So anyway, Greg, Greg came to me and he said, Dad, you know, uh, uh, we, we we need to have a website. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, right. I'm too busy publishing my magazine. I'm not worried about a website. So, uh, you know, after a couple of uh, attempts to get me interested in the idea of that, he said, you know, I'm going to do one. He says, I'm going to do one for us. So I said, okay. So um, he basically taught himself how to do, uh, you know, HTML or what, I guess I guess HTML goes back there for yeah, No, that was, what, absolutely. Whatever technology they were using in the, in the earlier days. And um, taught himself how to do a website and came up with a very nice website on the first uh, first shot out of the barrel. Yep. And uh, and uh, so I was tremendously pleased with him uh, for that, and he was pleased at having done it. And uh, it turned out after a year or so, I guess he decided he really liked doing websites more than he liked doing circulation for the magazine. So he left and and did his own. Uh, he started his own website design company, and then. Um, about four years ago now, and I started thinking about the idea of it'd be nice to retire and I need to get some sort of a succession plan in in, uh, in the works. Um, you know, I hired him back full time. He had kind of stayed on as, as kind of part time consultant for the magazine because he he continued to do all of our web stuff uh, during that period when he had his own company. I was kind of a client uh, in a sense. Anyway, about four years ago, I hired him back full time and, and kind of uh, with the idea that it would be nice to kind of work him into a a uh, publishing position in the magazine, and he he was the one. Um, it's kind of through his auspices, really, that we did it. we came up with our online edition of the magazine, which is basically just a facsimile edition uh, that we publish quarterly, and uh, that's made available free to any of our print subscribers, but people can can buy it. But more, you know, then we moved on to the iPad edition, which was also something that Greg was very much in favor of. Of doing, and um, and that with the, with the new scribbler guys that we worked with to, yep. to put it together for us. Um, now that's totally reformatted. It's got twice as many photos as we run in the print magazine. It's got video. We've had some of our issues have had forty minutes of video and a video breakdowns, you know, shot breakdowns, all kinds of things. So it's really uh, you know a different animal from the print magazine. It involves quite a lot of work and effort and. Um, uh, a lot of it which is getting it up and running, but just maintaining it now, uh, and that's all Greg's doing. He's pretty much taken that, uh, he took that bull by the horns. And, and so the, uh, the iPad edition, which we've been doing for, I think, three years now, um, has, has been pretty much his baby. And then we also have all of our, all of our back issues online from the very first one now uh, in, a rare, in a nice, uh, appealing manner without the video but a lot of other mm. kind of digital bells and whistles so that 
someone like you who wanted to who wants to be able to go back and research uh, when a particular effect was done or a particular film can just find it in seconds uh, with this search engine. We, they, we have it goes off across all uh, all of the issues uh, that we published. So that's that's great. And then um, and then as you mentioned, the blog um, we started that up about uh, about a year ago now, a little over a year ago, a uh, year and a half. Uh, we thought it would be nice to, to do a blog to try to try to be a little more current, uh, and also to cover some of the films that we don't have space for in the magazine. It used to be we could cover all the effects movies that were being done because there weren't that many of them, and now we have to be much more selective. And so there's a lot of interesting projects that fall through the cracks, and and so we uh, uh, we have a, a writer named uh, Graham Edwards in England uh, that we stumble across and uh, he's been fantastic and he's pretty much uh, Mr. Cinefax blog he does the whole thing himself and does a terrific job on it so yeah. those, are, those are our steps of kind of getting into the digital realm but we still love our little print magazine too no no absolutely and uh, and so do the rest of us um, <laughs> well uh, look you know I'm uh, I guess one person in what would be a very long queue of people that wants to say thank you uh, personally and professionally for everything that you've done. I know that you, we're not sort of, you're not completely disappearing, but nevertheless, as you have stepped back, um, it's an appropriate time for us to express our heartfelt thanks uh, just for the genuine commitment to the industry and the quality of the work in a time way before anybody else did. And uh, so many of us owe you such a debt of gratitude. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been uh, nice talking to you, and uh, appreciate it. And uh, we also appreciate what you guys do down there. So I think, as I think uh, you've said, we I think we complement each other more than compete with each other. And it's uh, it's been it's been nice having you as uh, as teammates and sharing our successes and failures. Absolutely. And uh, hopefully uh, I'll get to see you uh, sometime soon. I'll, I'll I'll make a point of next time I'm in LA uh, trying to find uh, Greg. And uh, but yeah, it's it's been a Real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. Great. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I think that uh, Mike uh, obviously has a lot of respect for Don and Don and Cinefax and all the work they've done, and hope to see what they do next as uh, Greg takes over and uh, the magazine continues. So uh, I, I do have to add to that story that Mike told about the James Cameron Titanic appearance at the Bake Off. It's even better than he described. There was a red light bulb on a stick, you know, the old stage gag with a light bulb on a pole. Um, and it used to come on at the podium next to the um, next to the podium when it was time to wrap up the discussion. There's a very tight time limit on the bake-off. And so James Cameron was up there, and the light bulb came on, and he just kind of deadpanned, looked at it, and said, well, the one thing we did learn about Titanic was to take the time you need. And as he said those line, that line, he reached over and unscrewed the red light bulb. So I guess they had to make some changes after that. So it's a funny story that Mike told. So that'll do it for this FX podcast. Check out our FX Insider program, a way for people to help us here at FX Guide continue to do what we do and grow, the FX Insider tab on the main site. And as I mentioned, FX PhD, terms in full swing over there. Check that out over at fxphd.com. So for my partners, John Montgomery and Mike Seymour, this is Jeff User. We'll see you on the next FX podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage.
This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.